Members, I declare the meeting open to the public and can I remind you all that whilst we're in public session, the committee meeting will be recorded and broadcast throughout Parliament buildings and online. Today we have four members attending in person, myself, Emma Shear, and the Vice Chair Mike Nesbitt, Michelle McElveen and Colleen Telford. And we have three members attending online. We've got Mark Turkin, Joan O'Dowd and Paula Bradshaw. You've got a kickback here. Right now. Okay, so we don't have any apologies, so we're going to take agenda items two and three together um, at the request of the witnesses. So you'll find uh, a contribution uh, from the bar as in table papers, which should have uh, members should have received via email, and we now have a briefing from Peter Call QC and Maria McCluskey. So. Peter and Maria, you're very welcome. Thanks very much. Thank you. And you can begin your briefing when you're comfortable. Uh, okay, well, I think um, the plan was for me to take off, if that's okay, with the committee. Yes. So, uh, good afternoon. We hope you can hear me okay? Yes, yeah. yes, thank you. Okay, that's good. Uh, I want to thank you, first of all, very much for the opportunity to present. Unfortunately, uh, as it turns out, unfortunately, uh, in current uh, circumstances to the committee, uh, on your consideration of um, issues related to Bill of Rights for the Board of Parliament. And just to say something first of all about who I am and uh, the organisation I represent today. So, uh, my name is Peter Cole. I'm Vice Chair of the Board of Northern Ireland um, and Vice Chair of the Board Council of Northern Ireland. Board Council uh, is an elected body of 20 barristers. And we act as a representative body for the Board of Northern Ireland, which comprises of over 650 self employed barristers. And uh, our independent practicing barristers specialise in the provision of um, expert legal advice and advocacy, aiming to serve public interest by upholding the rules of law and the administration of justice. Great background myself, I called the Bar in 1996, um, and uh, I was called the Senior Bar and became QC. Uh, six years ago. Uh, in my own legal practice, I specialise in administrative and public law. I have um, some experience in representing uh, government bodies primarily, but also sometimes appearing against them, uh, incorporating to judicial reviews, inquests, and um, the occasional public inquiries. Hopefully, members have had the opportunity to review the written submission that we have signed with you that's been referred to by the chair a short time ago. And uh, you can't hear proposed to read that out, uh, take some into that. There are a few points I'd like to highlight very opening remarks, and then I think Maria is going to speak then after that. And uh, I think we're obviously happy to answer any questions or queries that you might have for us. So I'm conscious that um, the particular issue that I've been asked to address is about disability and enforcement issues relating to the Bill of Rights. And um, I appreciate that you've heard from uh, some others previously, I respect that um, many people are much more expert in that field than me, so hope you'll bear with me and respect what I have to say at this point. Um, it's the uh, view of the board that um, in the context of what you're currently undertaking, the committee must develop a clear and coherent approach towards um, 
what it ultimately aims to achieve through the Bill of Rights before it can really reach any conclusions on the justiciability of the social economic rights uh, or uh, potential models of enforcement. And the issues surrounding the incorporation of these rights into legal systems have been subject to extensive research and commentary in jurisdictions across the world with various different models uh, offering uh, helpful comparators to your consideration. I know you've taken some evidence already in respect of that. However, we consider um, as an organisation that it's essential that the committee settles upon the approach that works in the context of this specific jurisdiction in the North Island. And the discussion is, as everybody in the committee will be well aware, the Bill of Rights in North Island has been ongoing for over 20 years. And while the board as an organisation doesn't uh, at the moment express a particular opinion on how um, the um, work of the committee should proceed in that regard, we very much hope to be able to contribute to an open and frank discussion on the practicalities um, that will uh, surround the development of any Bill of Rights in due course. And that as that process continues and as the proposals, if they were to come, crystallise, we would uh, hope to uh, be able to fulfil further uh, uh, consultative role uh, and be able to um, assist finalisation of that towards legislative um, effect. And secondly, uh, it's also worth commenting on the role of the courts in considering the merits of the new bill of rights. And whilst it might legitimately be argued, that accountability is the cornerstone of human rights, ensuring that those noble ideals um, transfer themselves from pieces of paper uh, and worthy principles into actual practical application. And um, we, we ask you to remember that you acknowledge the courts of the accountability mechanisms, really the accountability mechanism of the last report, in holding other branches of the state to account the executive branch and indeed. On a case in the legislative approach, the creation of social economic rights through the Bill of Rights will not in itself necessarily result in these rights uh, coming easily to the board, um, and it will be the underpinning of those headline rights um, that uh, will perhaps be crucial. Watch the Lord Chief Justice giving evidence uh, to you previously, and he talked about the granular detail and um, and that resonated with me. I think that okay, the devil of all of this will be in the detail of, of how the Bill of Rights comes together and what the actual bite um, of those rights will be. Um, so, we, the role of the courts as a potential um, enforcement mechanism to um, the rights being justiciable um, cannot, I think, be entirely divorced from the political obligations which primarily must arise in respect of rights of that nature that become legally consequential and justiciable. And this is obviously not going to be, as you have probably covered already, a straightforward task. And there is ample evidence to show that the ability to realise the ambition and scope of public policy um, is subject to constraints, primarily, for example, of public expenditure and the dynamic associated uh, with the system of government that exists in this jurisdiction. So um, there is a range of case law and, um, and that highlights that it's not the function of the courts to take decisions on questions relating to the executive branch's budgetary arrangements and the competing um, public um, priorities.
rates for the management of expenditure um, public funds. And these will often and obviously involve complex decisions taken in context very unfortunately challenging economic backdrops. And in primary uh, position we would say that um, the immediate accountability mechanism in respect to that is that exercised by you as legislators and decision makers um, in the assembly um, in holding the executive to account in political terms um, for the uh, budgetary expenditure of public funds. And by way of example of that, um, we have referred in our written piece to a 2017 court case here with the Department of Justice uh, and Bell and the Police Ombudsman from Northern Ireland. And um, in that case, the judgment was delivered by uh, Lord Justice Gilliam, and he highlighted a number of important principles in distinguishing between decisions of the executive and the role of the court, which perhaps we're briefly repeating here, in which he said, normally, the question of whether the government allocates sufficient resources to any particular area of state activity is not justiciable. There should be little scope or necessity for the court to engage in microscopic examination of the respective merits of competing macroeconomic valuations of a decision involving the allocation of diminishing resources. These are matters for policymakers rather than judges, for the executive rather than for the judiciary. I understand um, that Sir John Gill may be given evidence to the committee in the coming weeks. And in fact, that, that's territory you may wish to explore further with him. Um, but for what's worth, um, from my perspective, um, seeing that court will, um, in, in the court setting in terms of enforceability, much will always depend on the wording. Again, back to this point of the granular detail of the statutory right. And the tighter that it is, the more likely the court will approach it as a hard edged matter of pure legal entitlement as opposed to a matter of discretion the executive branch decision-making, which the court is perhaps not well-equipped um, to do with. So um, the justiciability issue um, is one that traditionally the courts have been perhaps wary uh, of, uh, of um, interfering in political fields. And, um, but at the same time, it's not to extend the justiciability or legal enforcement in the courts of Legislative rights. It will be determined in the negative because the matter gives rise to political interest or indeed political controversy on occasion. And one might say in public law and administrative law setting in particular, the courts on a day by day basis make decisions on matters which are of great political interest and indeed on occasion concern matters of great um, political controversy. And um, the committee will probably be aware that there's an ongoing review at the moment by Westminster um, uh, into administrative law, the independent review of the Ministry of Law, really a, a review about the scope and extent of judicial review powers, primarily in Wales, but uh, potentially in parts um, more widely. And in the bar submission uh, recently to that review, uh, we made reference. Um, to the um, Supreme Court case last year, the parliamentary prorogation case, Cherry and Blue Number 2. And um, I mean, what was said by the Supreme Court in respect of, um, of that decision with the context and uh, had to look into the political matters. And so, courts 
cannot decide political questions. The fact that legal dispute concerns the conduct of politicians or arises from a matter of political controversy has never been sufficient reason for courts to refuse to consider it. Almost all important decisions made by the executive have a political issue to them. Nevertheless, the courts have exercised the supervisory jurisdiction over the decisions of the executive for centuries. In many, if not most, the constitutional cases in our legal history have been concerned with politics in that case. So um, I think really what we, as a, as a bar say in respect to this issue, is the courts are competent to answer questions where the legal effect of political decisions is proper and such the um, 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 provisions that will not be immune from the court's uh, review simply on the basis that it strays potentially into political territory. Um, but there is a there is a balance and a line that we struck and for example even very whole press in yesterday's um, uh, leave application uh, in the High Court in Belfast uh, to uh, a challenge to uh, the Prime Minister's signing of the Brexit withdrawal agreement as reported in the papers today, in which Mr Justice Michael Linden uh, found that the court uh, really has no constitutional role or function in delving into the mindset uh, of the Prime Minister at the time he signed the withdrawal agreement. And the argument in that case has been that uh, there was an allegation that the Prime Minister never planned to stick with the terms of the EU Withdrawal Agreement Act passed by Parliament and that he was planning to take a different course. And the counter argument before and behalf of government was issues of that nature relating to foreign policy and um, the Prime Minister's actions in signing the agreement shouldn't be subject to judicial scrutiny. He was exercising the role of Parliament and that was a sovereign act and that it's not the court to seek to engage uh, in some kind of um, almost psychological inquiry into what was in the state of the Prime Minister's mind at the time. That's effectively the courts, the being courts heard yesterday, and the government was refused. So, um, so I suppose in summary, at this point, really what I'm trying to get across is that if the committee ultimately decides, and if the outcome is that there is merit in developing the Bill of Rights, then the, um, the, that process must take account of the need to be very careful in drafting the scope of the legislation that might give effect to any social economic rights. Because in those rights engage complex areas of policy relevant to um, not just the freedom of um, both the legislative capacity within the assembly itself, but also in the executive branch, the ministerial decision making in terms of the expenditure of public funds primarily. And um, that uh, necessitates, I think, on your part, a thorough explanation of the potential consequences of enforcement by the courts, particularly when considering any financial repercussions it could have for other branches of government, and indeed potentially outside of the both functioning in North Ireland and to the uh, central UK um, function that still remains in North Ireland. Um, and um, I think it might also be said that a well-crafted and tightly drawn bill of rights would reduce the likelihood of any disputes as to what that document provides for and for the need for judicial interpretation and determination of any disputes. But it would be unrealistic, I think, to assume that the limits of any new rights and how they should be applied in any individual set of circumstances uh, would not be tested in more courts 
uh, on a regular basis. Not trying to be a very clear experience with practitioners and indeed I would say many um, government departments and public agencies more generally um, in the context of the current uh, model we have of human rights law in this jurisdiction through the Human Rights Act. So the committee I think should be very realistic in anticipating that there is every uh, should be every expectation that that will also become the norm for judicial uh, consideration of any newly created rights. And um, so I particularly would like to say if, you know, if the legislation were to be drawn in a very determinative fashion with hard-edged rights rather than vague rights or aspirational rights, target duty rights, and that um, the title of work determinative the um, the um, approach that's adopted, the greater you can expect enforcement to follow uh, in a practical level um, through the courts, and the greater impact therefore that will have on freedom to create policy and indeed freedom in expenditure of public funds. So um, it would almost be careful to think of that legislative straitjacket that could potentially come um, from this. And it certainly, in that sense, would give rise to fertile territory for the, the lawyers and the, um, the ingenuity of the legal mind um, to um, push boundaries um, of what those rights should mean in practical application. So, um, I suppose, in that sense, what I'd say in summary is that you, and I say you, I mean, generally speaking, the um, those who might be involved in, in, in bringing about a bill of rights, if that's the decision, that you should follow the old box and not be careful what you wish for, because um, you might get it. And uh, so, on that, um, if you note, that's my brief summary of our written briefing that we provided to you. And obviously, I'd be delighted after the raised contribution to answer any follow up questions or any queries that you have for me. Thank you very much, Peter. Maria, do you want to? Yes. Can you hear me okay? We can. Okay, great. So, um, thank you very much, Peter, and thank you, Chair, and to the committee for inviting the Law Society of Northern Ireland to um, present before you today and give evidence. Um, as a bit of background to me, my name is Maria Mikulski and I am an immigration solicitor at the Children's Law Centre. I'm also chair of the Law Society of Northern Ireland's Human Rights and Equality Group. And that group sits um, more as an informal group within the, the uh, rather than being a formal committee of the Law Society. And it's discussions within that group um, that have led to the basis of this presentation today, rather than a wider consultation with the entire membership of the Law Society of Northern Ireland. Um, but thank you nonetheless, and I think it's a nice coincidence that today is, of course, International Human Rights Day, and I'm very much coming from a human rights perspective. So there are three main points that I wish to highlight in my presentation. Um, the first is that a rights-based approach was part of the DNA of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. The second is that the loss of the Charter of Fundamental Rights and the gaps that it is likely to leave, uh, we think, can potentially be addressed through Bill of Rights from Northern Ireland. And the third is the importance of the enforceability of rights. So to give some context to our position, 
I think that there has been a very clear and worrying and disintegration of human rights protections in the UK over recent months and years. And despite assurances that human rights would be on an equal footing following the UK's exit from the European Union, there are strong reasons to suggest that this might not be so. On Monday of this week, the government announced a review of the Human Rights Act. This has been framed in the past as wanting to consider the relationship between the European Court of Human Rights and domestic courts. And it will certainly be sold as an appropriate time to review the Human Rights Act. But essentially, from our perspective, the government doesn't like when it loses challenges. And particularly when those challenges are based on Article 8 rights to private and family life. At such times, the government, when it has lost a challenge, um, can frame human rights such that they are a threat to society rather than existing to protect members of that society. And very often, there can be a complete disregard um, for the context and the circumstances of certain legal challenges so that the nuances and difficulties of balancing competing rights can, can get completely ignored. Another threat may be seen um, by the commencement uh, earlier this year of the independent review of the administrative law and that is the judicial review mechanism. So the Law Society has responded to that consultation and outlined our concerns that the agenda of the government is to limit the powers of the court to review administrative decisions in order to shield the government and those decisions from scrutiny. So judicial reviews should be seen as a way in which to rectify unforeseen breaches of the law precisely because elected branches of government can't foresee every application of a policy. And not only does a judicial review mechanism resolve unforeseen breaches, but it increases the legitimacy of the government by providing independent oversight. So on to my, the first of my main points, and that is that a rights-based approach was the core tenet of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. The peace agreement obviously grew out of conflict here, and that's a history which has shaped us and will continue to shape us going forward. Understandably, at the time, there was a lot of emphasis when discussing the Bill of Rights within the text of the agreement about the both communities aspect. But the main text of the agreement, in terms of discussing safeguards, specifically about the protection of equality for all sections of the community. And the landscape of Northern Ireland has changed significantly in the last 22 years. And I think it's vital that all sections of the community are represent, represented and considered in this discussion. The thing about a Bill of Rights is that it confers benefits on everyone. It doesn't take something away from one group and give it to another. And I would urge you to hold that rights-based framework within your sites as you continue working on this committee. And that brings me on to the second main point, which is the loss of the Charter of Fundamental Rights and Freedoms. So the justification for not including the Charter of Domestic Law following the UK's exit from the European Union was that the rights of the Charter confer, sorry, that was that the rights that the Charter confers won't be weakened. And this was supported by the argument that many of the rights of the Charter are directly replicated in the European Convention on Human Rights, which is incorporated into domestic law, of course, through the Human Rights Act. As already outlined, we think there is now a threat to the Human Rights Act in the home itself. But a couple of other key points about the Charter. And first of all, the Charter provides fundamental rights, 
it is a basis upon which a direct challenge can be brought to domestic law. And that ability to strike down domestic legislation doesn't exist within the European Convention of Human Rights. Secondly, the Charter functioned in such a way that it could create new rights, new rights and allow for developments and changes within the society. For example, the right to be forgotten was based upon relying on Charter rights. And thirdly on the Charter is that despite the assertions of the government, the rights that it confers won't be directly replicated in their entirety in domestic law. So for example, on children's rights, something that the Children's Law Centre has been to the forefront of campaigning and advocating on, the best interests principle is no longer available as it was through the Charter, because the Court of Justice in the European Union had the ability to read in the European United Nations, sorry, the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And that, of course, is an international treaty which has been ratified by the UK, but it hasn't been incorporated into domestic law. So the loss of the Charter of Fundamental Rights, we believe, needs to be counterbalanced by strengthening the statutory enforcement of human rights in Northern Ireland. And I think now, more than ever, the impetus for rights should be obvious. And I think this should be seen as a golden opportunity to guard, to guard against further awakening of rights. And thirdly, on the point of enforceability, unenforceable rights aren't really rights at all. So it is, of course, for the Assembly to determine the nature, scope, and the operation of the bill, but a few points that I wish to make. The less ambiguous the bill, the bill is, the less likely it is that individuals will need to seek legal intervention. It will require that granularity that Peter and the Lord Chief Justice has spoken of from the legislative framework to support whatever is in the bill. A number of models have already been considered and presented to you in detail um, by other experts, um, particularly by the Human Rights Centre at Queen's. It should be remembered that courts are a measure of last resort. So the first court of call is on the implementation and then the adherence to any bill of rights. And I think a pre-legislative scrutiny and the role of a standing committee at Stormont would be key components of this. The greater the level of commitment and compliance by government, the less need there will be for individuals to come to lawyers and seek assistance by way of legal intervention. Neither courts nor legal professionals invent or create obligations. They are means by which individuals can seek to review the decisions made by government. And there are many examples of how this can work based on models around the world. There are also some invented and novel suggestions, such as by Professor Keo Regan, in relation to localised accessible tribunals. And that's not only a tangible and accessible method for individuals to access their rights, but it would also act as a filtering mechanism for potential legal challenges. When it does get to the stage of legal proceedings, as undoubtedly it would, there's already a natural filtering mechanism at the league stage of judicial reviews. There are, of course, barriers to legal challenges posed by funding constraints and lack of legal literacy. And I think access to justice, which is a wider issue, should remain a key consideration in the workings of the Bill of Rights. Accessibility and clarity are key ingredients, both for legal professionals and for the public. And this would require commitment to embedding the human rights or the Bill of Rights in this jurisdiction by providing training and working 
with the various legal professionals. I believe that human rights shouldn't be an abstract concept, but it should be accessible and tangible. Whatever the bill contains, we as legal professionals will fulfill our duty by advising clients as to whether they might use it in order to resolve their particular issue or complaint. On that point, I wish to touch upon threats not only to human rights, but to the wider rule of law principle. And I'm referring to the ongoing attacks on the legal profession, and in particular, comments by the Home Secretary and the Prime Minister, which completely undermine the role of solicitors and barristers, and thereby the rule of law itself. As a result, there are real fears about safety. And bearing in mind the particular circumstances of Northern Ireland and the catastrophic toll borne by the legal profession in the past, I think that this issue warrants some serious reflection in and of itself. In 1990, the UN Commissioner for Human Rights set out a number of basic principles on the role of human rights lawyers. It refers specifically to criminal proceedings, but I think that the principles apply across the board for human rights lawyers. And within it is the principle that lawyers shall at all times maintain the honour the honor and dignity of their profession as essential agents of the administration of justice. So for human rights to be meaningful, they must be enforceable. And that requires lawyers willing to take on unpopular causes without facing attacks by government ministers. In conclusion, protecting human rights shouldn't depend on the whim of the government. The short-term nature of elected politicians must give way to long-term commitments to a human rights framework for Northern Ireland. The hostile environment and the threats to human rights um, are undermining those protections, which, taken in the round, should be deeply concerning to all. The Bill of Rights presents an opportunity to address the imbalance and to protect the citizens here in the future. And I just want to finish by quoting the late Brian Kerr, who's passing the Law Society mourns, and I wish to take this opportunity to extend our sympathies to his family and friends. In a relatively recent interview, Lord Kerr said, Lawyers are not activists, they are reactivists. They bring problems to people bring problems to lawyers, and lawyers decide whether they can be fitted into some sort of legal framework in which a legitimate challenge can be taken. I can understand the government is less than pleased when challenges are made to decisions that they have frequently taken, that they have taken frequently after very considerable deliberations. But it doesn't seem to me that attacking lawyers who provide the services that allow those challenges to be made is particularly profitable. Ministers might be aggravated by legal challenges which may appear to them to be frivolous or misconceived. But if we are operating a healthy democracy, what the judiciary provides is a budgeting or checking mechanism for the validity of laws that Parliament has passed or appropriate international treaties to which we have subscribed. So thank you very much for the opportunity to present um, the Law Society would of course be happy to continue working on this in the future and I'm happy now to take any questions along with Peter. Thank you. Thank you very much um, to, to you both, two interesting presentations. Um, if you don't mind, I'll maybe divide my questions and Peter, I'll direct um, a first question to yourself and then um, move on to Maria. Uh, I noticed in your, both in your role of presentation and in the, the um, submission that you, you gave us, you make reference to sort of the, the different uh, remedies and the 
I know that there's a focus on accountability in terms of a Bill of Rights and the, the, the specific reference you made to the sort of pre-legislative scrutiny model. And I got from the presentation that you would see sort of a JR as a, as a last resort. I wondered if you would expand on that. Uh, well, um, in the final analysis, um, when, when you have either administrative uh, executive decision making or um, to the extent there might be the subject of challenge uh, administrative decision making, particularly by bodies such as the Assembly, which um, you know, doesn't carry the sovereignty of Parliament type time, like the Westminster might have. But even with that, Westminster on the Human Rights Act, where it can find its, um, its laws come on a joint attack. The point, I suppose, really is that um, if you, um, when the decision making, uh, the law itself, you get practical application, it's its impact on the life of the individual that's affected, that brings the creation of the law to the fore. Maria Tostom has said that um, to the accessibility to the law. And there's no point in having all well, the Parliament of Rights if, in fact, the practical means by which a member of society can actually have those rights protected and enforced is um, not open to them. So, just to review, um, in that sense, provides one of the, the, the main protections for the individual, for the citizen, um, against the um, um, the, the state and um, unlawful actions or uh, decision making by the state. But it's not much on the only means by which some can be done. So there are obviously there are other models that are perhaps slightly less egoistic that could also be incorporated into it, um, such as the, the idea of you know, clear scrutiny in advance. Um, and um, I, mean, I, I know that. Uh, the way the assembly works at the moment, for example, the um, laws being passed by the assembly to go through um, a process of scrutiny under the committee system, which you all be very familiar with, more so than I am. But even with that in place, um, there is always the opportunity for um, error, uh, there's always the opportunity for interpretation, and I think you know, when it comes down to it, um, if you move into territory of creating rights, um, and you have to expect that the that they will uh, give rise to legal action uh, by way of enforcement of them. Um, the clearer and the more determined those rights are, in one sense, the better because they um, leave perhaps less room for uh, ambiguity or interpretation. Um, well, as against that, um, the more determined if you make those rights, then the uh, more hard-edged they are in that sense, the easier they are for the courts to grapple with and to enforce. So you move away effectively from the aspirational rights or the target rights, and away from that sort of political or public policy form, more squarely into the legal enforceability world of <clears throat> what the law say, and remembering that in your reading of what's done, that's what the lawyers and the judges were there to do. They're there to see the upholding of the rule of law. Um, the legislative branch makes the laws, and the judicial branch and the lawyers um, uh, take to do with the enforcement and interpretation of them. 
So um, it is a cold glass resort, but I don't think you should take from that I mean that it's going to be the occasional or rare beast. I don't think it will be. I mean, and as I said in the presentation, the Human Rights Act um, has marked um, itself uh, over the last uh, 20 years or so of its operation uh, by um, being present in so many fields that an industry set up in 1998 and coming effective in 2000 might never have been thought possible that it could even be brought into court. So um, these things are a way of, of expanding and, grow, uh, and growing. And I think the Chief Justice talked about this in his presentation to you a while ago when he says we to look to protect um, just exactly what the implications of creating these kinds of rights will be and putting them into the legal sphere in that sense. Thanks, Peter. No, I just I suppose further to that because you do use the example of the South African model and we've we've had presentations obviously from people that were involved in that process and and um, former judges in South Africa who talk about the progressive realization model and I suppose in my mind it could somewhat be used as almost like it's that measure of accountability for you know governments or, or ministers or executives that there's if there's a clear bill of rights there that a government then knows what its responsibilities are and have to have a mind to that when legislating. Yeah, well, I think that that's undoubtedly right. Um, and um, and if you have just as for example at the moment on the human rights side, you have a series of mostly civil and political uh, oriented rights. Um, that are enshrined in domestic law and have a, a very high standing within that uh, domestic law setting. So that um, if um, in, in the passing of laws or in the taking of executive decisions uh, there's conflict with what those rights provide for, then a, a government agency that can do that does so at risk because those rights are hard edged and enforceable. And, um, and it's the uh, main drink of all courts nowadays to take to that kind of territory. So I think it really touches back in, uh, Chair, with the, the point I made that if you create rights that are hard edged and determinative, you can't expect them to be uh, enforced in a proactive fashion um, because that's what the law would require. If the rights are more generic, um, um, target rights, um, um, then it, it becomes more difficult for the courts to grapple with them more into the issue of whether they really are justiciable or whether it involves the courts tracing into political territory or public policy territory. And some of the older models, um, it seems to me, I'm no expert on them, I have to say, in terms of the surviving approach, etc. And you have heard from experts on this, but it seems to me that they suggest at times uh, of something that is more enforceability in political terms or in policy terms rather than in pure legal terms. So in other words, they, they almost become, maybe it's not pretty right point, but almost like a, um, an enhanced program of government or something like that, that it becomes the standard bearer um, against which um, government policy is engaged and judged, but that the enforceability of that might not be necessarily hard edged in court, it might be something that's dealt with within the assembly itself in, in a committee type structure, or of course in the final analysis, it might be 
Thank you very much, Peter. Maria, I, I want to, to ask you a question. I've, uh, we've had a number of these presentations, obviously, at this point, and I've asked a lot of the presenters about um, the gaps that we were going to have <clears throat> as a result of Brexit and whether or not there was scope within the creation of a Bill of Rights uh, to plug some of those gaps. Now, you said quite explicitly that you believe that we were going to have gaps um, as a result of the loss of the Charter of Fundamental Rights and that a Bill of Rights could have um, plugged some of those gaps. I just wonder, you know, we're 21 days away now. Is, is, that, is that reasonable that, that we have time now to do that when, when we leave the EU, that we, can, that we can hold on to some of those rights via Bill of Rights? Well, my view on that is that um, when when we when we do exit from the European Union, obviously there's going to be an element of delay, and, and how this impacts upon rights going forward is going to take some time to to become clear on. I think that obviously the work of your committee, and um, I know that you're not um, due to submit a final report until February of 2022, um, but I do see that as an opportunity to look at what are we losing from the Charter of Fundamental Rights, what are, we, what are we losing from the statutory framework here at the moment, and what can we then build in. And the, 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 the things that I was focusing on in relation to um, children's rights, um, in relation to the standalone uh, clause on equality, and, and you know the, the fact that we haven't implemented the race equality strategy here, I think that certainly those are those are the um, the things, the key things that we need to be looking at in, in terms of plugging those gaps. So yes, I think it's difficult in terms of timing, but I think that that should drive the committee on in terms of thinking what are we losing and what then can we can we bring in through the Bill of Rights? Yeah. So almost what you're saying is that it nearly increases the motivation and. The second thing that I wanted to ask you about, um, and it's perhaps slightly removed from your presentation, but um, just in terms and, and following on from Brexit, we we can see the, the British government's EU settlement scheme um, and the, the challenges that that is presenting and already concerns have been raised from different human rights organisations and from people in the law about the, the time frame and the accessibility of that, and particularly for frontier workers and for migrant workers that, that are here. And we don't know yet really, um, I think that there has been um, a clause within it that you can't apply if you're someone who's an Irish citizen in the North who has never expressed um, British identity, but people have applied and have been granted it. And I just wondered if you had thoughts on that or the implications that that has for, for people's rights as we move out of the EU? Well, I haven't been working specifically on the EU settlement scheme, but I do, I do know from colleagues that obviously the, the ability to apply through that scheme is time limited. I mean, it's time limited that we are, we are coming up on that time limit. At the end of June next year, you will not be able to uh, apply for the EU settlement scheme as it stands at the moment. Um, and obviously, as the Emma D'Souza case, um, was, the challenge was withdrawn on the basis that her, um, she could uh, remedy her, her issue because of the EU settlement scheme being open. That's going to close, and so the potential for legal challenges beyond that still exists. 
but from the perspective of um, uh, the children's rights, for example, that I do know about, there we are working, and my colleague is working a significant um, amount of work going into uh, trying to apply for the EU settlement scheme on behalf of the deaf children, a, a vulnerable group of people who have largely been forgotten um, or who haven't been to the forefront of this issue. Um, and for those vulnerable individuals and children who don't have documentation, the ability to apply through the scheme is much, much more difficult. Uh, and requires paper application and different types of evidence. So it's not as smooth uh, as it's, as you might think from if, if you have, you know, if you apply through the app, um, it's very straightforward if you have some sort of document, but if you don't, um, it's not straightforward. And the other major concern is that a large number um, of people who can apply through the um, scheme won't know about this until after the time has passed. So um, I know that I've gone off point and we're talking about um, Irish citizens, um, but I do think that there are certainly concerns about that going forward. No, th thank you. And I, I suppose I'll finish with that. that. That's, I suppose, why I'm asking questions like that is we obviously as a committee are here to consider creating a Bill of Rights as per 1998, considering the particular circumstances of the North and the impact of Brexit. And as you pointed out at the beginning of your presentation, I suppose the demographics of the North and the situation here is a lot different now to what it was in 1998. Brexit is obviously going to have massive implications and we have an increasing uh, you know, migrant worker population here and people from those communities are incredibly worried. And I think when we're talking about rights, it's important to consider the, the loss of rights to, to, to populations that are maybe usually ignored or forgotten about and there's any you know potential for for us to expand upon the rights that those people have access to it's it's incumbent on, on us to do so so thank thank you both very much i'm going to pass now to the vice chair mike chair thank you and uh, maria and peter thanks thanks for engaging uh, with us um peter f first of all I, I take your point that the, the more tightly and clearly we 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 use our language in the bill of rights the less room for ambiguity and, and potentially successful legal challenge. But when it comes to economic and social rights, it seems to me there would be an inevitability that there'll be a form of aspirational writing within there. So my question is, how comfortable and well-equipped do you think your members would be uh, to argue concepts like progressive realisation uh, and the use of maximum available resources? Um, I, I suspect that um, many of my colleagues would feel very happy um, to have the opportunity to make arguments along those lines, Mike. And um, I think, as I indicated, um, the uh, ingenuity of the legal mind is such that if provided with tools uh, that allow the opportunity to achieve a result for one's class. Um, there won't be any great reluctance um, whatsoever on the part of the lawyers in this jurisdiction to use what's available to them to achieve those aims. So if you have creation of legal rights, even if they are of a more aspirational nature rather than hard-edged um, specific rights, um, um, such as you know, a right to a particular type of benefit in particular circumstances, something of that nature, which is you know, usually reasonably straightforward, and you look to what the law says, 
you look to the individual circumstances, you apply them together and you get a result. If you have a cross-relational aspect to it, then I think really the, the, the two interrelated points I would make to you is that yes, you can certainly expect a lot of dedication in relation to them, um, but alongside that, there will be um, a cultural battle, maybe, uh, in the sense of the gender rights to spark productions uh, of the courts and the law generally to engage with um, um, rights to sit in political, um, matters to sit in the political sphere rather than the legal sphere. I think that's really the, the key point that we're trying to get across. Um, about just disability, which is what we really um, have asked us to think about today is that if you're going to create lives, if they're not hard edge, then um, how do they fit into uh, a kind of only enforcement mechanisms that will not necessarily be straightforward in the legal sense and may also require some of these other accountability enforcement mechanisms that you're um, seeing evidence and advice about. But from the legal perspective, and I suppose really what I can bring to this is from a legal perspective, there certainly would be um, an opportunity to develop those aspirational rights, um, but that would not necessarily be something that would overnight lead to uh, hard-edged outcomes. And that's been the experience, perhaps to an extent, in, in um, some of the aspects of the European Convention which touched on Article 14 of the Convention about the discrimination aspects. So um, we have a hard-edged right under the Convention may not apply specifically to that individual circumstances, but that they can compare themselves to somebody else who does benefit from that right in a different way. And that's, um, that's first our territory for state and difficulty, and it currently provides a lot of um, um, difficulty in legal interpretation. So I can see a risk of that kind of situation developing if you have more aspirational rights. Thanks, Peter. You're crystal clear, and many others are, that it's not for the courts to, to get involved in the allocation of, of budgets by an executive. But is there not a tension between that statement and perhaps having to argue uh, that a specific minister or department has not used maximum available resource? Um, well, it depends again, I suppose, on what the, like, the, the, the right says, and the, the depth or the kind or detail of the end use of it. Yeah. Um, the, at the moment, um, um, the, the, you would expect the courts to say if there's a choice between expenditure in one field and expenditure in another, and the courts might say, well, that's not really territory that a judge can engage with. It's not, the judge is not elected by the people to um, distribute public funds, that's primarily a political um, matter for ministers. Um, and so I, I think it depends the ministerial decision making in respect of that. Uh, if that's what we're talking about, may be constrained in circumstances um, depending on the statutory backdrop. So if the statute uh, provides um, a clear uh, stare um, as to what must be provided for the individual, and if uh, in the circumstances 
the, the Minister of the Department concerned have the money available. Um, might be more difficult for them to argue, well, that's we're not in the territory of difficult decisions uh, of doing our public money that the court should leave for executive decision making. Right, thanks, Peter. Um, I have a question for, for you both, so perhaps Peter first before I go over to Maria. With, with regard to JRs, um, it's been put to us that one possibility in terms of a Bill of Rights is that you would build in a sunrise clause whereby uh, you could not take a JR for a period of, for example, five years. What, what, what's your view on that, Peter? It's, well, it's quite an ingenious in one effect, um, and um, I mean, of course, it depends again in itself how it is done. I mean, would it by itself be subject to some kind of um, potential ground of challenge um, after the ingenuity of the legal mind again? And we wouldn't rule out. But again, I think it really comes down to, for example, if this, you know, if you mentioned that the public rights is made through um, a Westminster enactment rather than assembly enactment, it might uh, hard edge that a little bit more, and um, it might be said, well, that's the clear will of Parliament and that's the way it is. And we might allow an opportunity for a lot of this to break down. I think perhaps one of the major problem that you see with that is it may not necessarily be a legal issue, it's more just a matter of practicality. Uh, until such time as the decision makers would be faced with circumstances where their decision making relating to those rights could be subject to enforcement, that pressure may not be on to actually engage with it. Um, so you might have that opportunity for school burning for people to get their, their head out of the idea. Um, but uh, as opposed to a sort of near zero type approach and a, a, a sudden um, running start. Thanks. That's, that's very interesting. Thank you. Maria, what about you? Because you spoke positively about JRs. Yes, I did. <laughs> um, I mean, I think the, the, the suggestion of a sunrise clause, and it's going to sound like I'm just echoing the comments of QC, but um, I think it's a pretty ingenious idea. I know that it has worked in other um, artists uh, working in other um, scenarios around the world. Um, I noticed also that Lord Chief Justice talked about, you know, avoiding the big bang, um, but as against that, there are potentially some difficulties. I mean, I think that it makes sense um, in circumstances where the government might be concerned about um, challenges being brought, that there might be some element of delay to allow it to embed and to allow for um, certain departments to get their house in order, I suppose to ensure that they are compliant with the Bill of Rights. So personally, I think that it would probably make sense in this context where there is that concern, but that's not to take away from the potential 
Okay, so that, that's a sort of form of post-legislative scrutiny. But Maria, you, yeah, Maria, you're you're keen on pre-legislative scrutiny. I want I wonder if you could just expand on that, and and how you see it working. You know, not just in terms of perhaps a specific new Stormont committee, but engagements with bodies like the Children's Law Centre. So I think that in terms of pre-legislative And I think you, you would be one, I think Dominic Grieve was another, who said, really we don't know what the full impact uh, on rights will be post the transition period. So how, how do you counter an argument that we should wait and see rather than continue with this work of this committee? Well, from a, again, from a personal perspective, um, there has been some waiting and seeing about certain things only to be disappointed um, and thinking, you know, when you take these things on an individual basis um, and, and people can consider them in silos, I suppose, you think, well, that's not, that's not, that's not huge impact. Um, but from my perspective, certainly, it feels like a chipping away and, and a continual chipping away at rights which when, you, when you know, we get to end your journey, I would be concerned if that trend continues. And I think that at that stage then it could potentially be too late because opportunities like this may not be around. Um, and I think that the time to act is always now. And, and I suppose the other thing is, if, if there was a Bill of Rights, that's not the end of the journey because rights evolve over time. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that that's exactly where you know the role of uh, lawyers and the courts come come in because um you can't foresee every impact um but what i would say on that is that bills of rights exist around the world they exist in most complex societies they you know work to a greater or less extent um, but there are certainly plenty of models from which 
um, the most positive aspects can be taken for the purposes of informing your work. Okay, Maria and Peter, thank you both very much. Thank you, Chair. Michelle? Okay, thank you, and thank you very much, both of you, for your presentations. And um, I suppose my questions have primarily been, been already addressed through the presentation and also through the, um, the briefing that was provided by the Bar in advance. I just really want to pick up on one point that was raised within um, Peter's paper, which was in relation to um, a preamble. And obviously you said in, in your presentation the devil was in the detail. Um, and yet, we suppose really when we're looking at what you've referred to in your in your paper, you're talking about a scope for a general preamble. Could you maybe expand on what you would um, anticipate perhaps being in, or suggest what should be in a preamble? Um, okay, well, uh, I don't think I could, I mean, I certainly can um, um, work on what the, the concepts might be, but the content of a preamble, I think, um, is something that will fall to to um, politicians to something primarily. I think the idea behind it is that um, even if you have um, within the body of the Bill of Rights hard edge strikes, that you might still want to set the tone for um, what they, what you see them as meaning in practical terms on the ground in a preamble. Um, and even more so if in fact the Bill of Rights doesn't include hard edged uh, granular detailed rights uh, and the more of the aspirational nature. So the preamble might set out um, something along the lines of why are we here? Why do we have the Bill of Rights? Um, what, what's the purpose in having the Bill of Rights? What does it sought to achieve by the Bill of Rights? And um, it might also provide some steer to the courts as to how it might go about controlling those rights and what it might do in making them effective or not do in making them effective. So a preamble could provide an opportunity to uh, set the parameters within which the rights created within the document itself will have um, actual effect. And I think actually I suppose we might see the role of preamble coming in. Um, but obviously there are dangers in that as well. I mean, if you look at it in the normal sense, when you're in your day-to-day business of creating laws, um, the statutes that you create, such instruments you create, they don't generally have preambles, they pretty much get to it. Mm-hmm. Might be a very brief setting of the context, uh, um, really not. And maybe an example note um, that might cover some of that territory a little bit more. Ordinarily, the expansion notes will have a limited role in, in legal interpretation. Um, so I think the preamble idea will allow you an opportunity to perhaps do something different in that regard and to set the tone and parameters of how the document itself might become a living document as opposed to something that gathers just on lawyer's shelves. Okay, thank you. And Maria, have you given any consideration to what a preamble may look like? I mean, before, I honestly, before Peter spoke, I was thinking <laughs> it is about setting the tone and the context. Um, and I think that, you know, within that, sometimes the preamble can be more accessible, maybe to um, individuals rather than the finer detail of the, of the rights themselves. 
So, um, I mean, I don't, I don't really have anything further to add to that, sorry. Okay, no, thank you. Thank you. No problem, Michelle. We're now going to move to the members that are with us via Starlight. So I can see that Paula has her hands up. Um, yes, thank you very much. Um, the question relates to um, today, as, as uh, you outlined there, it's Human Rights Day, and the Human Rights Commission launched their annual statement, and unfortunately, I was at the Health Committee, so I wasn't able to see it. But I had a quick look online there um, while you were speaking, and there's 46 actions um, for one of the men some of them are obviously um, responsibility of the Home Office, but it strikes me in those actions that a lot of them are um, like the Single Equality Act or a youth um, disability forum. A lot of the stuff we could do to address deficient or deficiencies or perceived deficiencies in human rights here in Northern Ireland without your gun rights per se. How would you respond to that? Uh, well, if you ask me that, oh, yes, I think you're right, absolutely. And um, um, I mean, very many uh, pieces of what might be described in non majority as ordinary pieces of legislation um, do exactly what you've just described and provide rights for individuals which are not at all trivial and in fact are uh, of great practical, meaningful importance day to day for thousands and thousands of people uh, in this jurisdiction. So um, uh, I think you're absolutely right to identify that um, this is it's not a either or situation, you know, either you have a bill of rights or all the rights that you might want to create will fall away. I think maybe um, the issue for you all to grapple with is, and I didn't talk to the chair, this in passing a short time ago as well, but it's you're looking at what What's required of a bill of rights potentially in the particular circumstances of Port Ireland? And that operates in the context of what, what um, rights tension already exists, primarily, for example, the Human Rights Act and the European Convention being incorporated through it. Maria talk about the EU Charter, which obviously is going to be of more limited effect. Uh, potentially, depending on what happens in any deal may or may not be done uh, in the future in the next um, few days. And um, so well, alongside that you have a whole panoply of statutory rights and indeed common law rights, which are recognised by the courts uh, outside of pure statutory form in this jurisdiction. And they all exist and they're all there. You, you have an opportunity on an ongoing basis to add to those, and I know that indeed you do on a regular basis. And to those who prefer to single call that idea that exists in England and Wales, whether that should be replicated here. But also, I mean, there's been some recent um, uh, public discourse about the, uh, on the anniversary of the Disability Discrimination Act in 1995 and the impact of it, which have been very far reaching. But it's obviously um, showing its age a little bit and perhaps needs um, refreshed, perhaps. And so those are matters that are very important, I think, um, and shouldn't be lost sight of. I know that you won't do so. The very fact, indeed, that you've raised it today. Um, just following on that, thank you. Um, you, you mentioned a, a number there, the Human Rights Act, for example, and that's what, when Professor Bryce Dixon was here, I'd ask them the question around, would it, would it be just useful really to codify into one sort of bill, one sort of act, on one of those human rights? Adding in obviously the particular circumstances and a few um, t- 
tidy up exercises, but not to make it too expansive, but to just get it one focal um, on the human rights sort of in the one focal bill. Would that be something that you think that we could deliver here and would actually achieve what the wider community would have in terms of expectation? Um, well, I, I, I mean, I'm sure time ago, I think you maybe touched on what you said that um, one of the things you need to think carefully about is how the any new rights might be created in the Bill of Rights, how they will interact with um, and be influenced by and developed by the Human Rights Act and the European Convention. So, um, 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 you know, is it a possibility to effectively take the Human Rights Act and, um, and put it into um, a, a new statutory framework? Possibly, yes. Um, there are all kinds of technical issues when I come from that, and obviously the Human Rights Act is an act of Westminster. I don't know if it, and I think it's probably still an open question as to whether Bill of Rights here, if it were to be enacted, would be done through Stormont uh, or through Westminster. Um, the, the Human Rights Act carries with it a very um, powerful um, mechanism whereby um, acts of of Westminster, which carries uh, that tenor of parliamentary supremacy, that they can be declared incompatible with the European Convention on the Human Rights Act, and that has a political impact, primarily um, in that parliament then has to address what it's going to do about that. Uh, it doesn't necessarily strike the act down, obviously, in that sense, because parliamentary sovereignty is maintained. So I think there, there's all kinds of very technical interplays with that, that we need to be careful about how that's done. Bryce said, I didn't get the opportunity to see what Bryce said, and Bryce would be very well placed, I think, to have spoken to you about those very important technical issues, and he may well have done that. Um, and so I'm not terribly excited of just how you might take those technical aspects through, rather than to say there are obviously factors that the, uh, the draftsman would need to be very careful in respecting. Paul, if I could just comment on that as well, just if you don't mind, um, in, in relation more to your first question, um, I think that, um, I mean, the recent polling on this issue in relation to Bill of Rights, I think it was 83% of those who polled thought that a Bill of Rights is important for Northern Ireland, and I think that it sets a tone for Northern Ireland and the type of society that we, you know, that we are and that we want to be. And I think that it's important for people. I think it's important that, um, and I don't want to take away from those pieces of, of legislation that you're talking about because I do think they're very important. But I do think that the Bill of Rights will be the place in which to have them um, tied together um, and that they can then be supported by other pieces of legislation, but that they are there and want Bill of Rights that people can access and say, okay, this is what my rights are, you know, or these are the rights that we have as individuals. So I think that it's again coming back to, you know, what, what came out of the Good Friday Agreement, what we've been talking about for 22 years, and what, you know, the position that we're in now in terms of, I think, the need to protect human rights and to protect them going forward as well. Thank you. Okay, Paula, we'll go to Mark next. Thank 
future and I'm going to thank you for the presentation. I haven't any questions uh, per se this afternoon. Chair, I've been listening, it's been extremely interesting and anything that I had been going to ask uh, has either A, been asked or B, been answered with <laughs> anything that I asked. Thank you. Thanks. No problem. John? Um, uh, I'm not sure, um, thank you to uh, Peter and Maria for your presentation. I'm not even sure if I have a question, but it's more of a commentary. Um, I might take that question as a micro commentary. It's a problem. I'm struggling to get out. Uh, as a legislator, the first question I ask myself is Is legislation necessary to solve the problem or the opportunity in front of me? Uh, the answer is yes to that, then, but I want in front of me. And then what I want to end up with is a piece of legislation that is workable and enforceable. Uh, and this week in the Assembly, we've seen a well-intentioned amendment to a piece of legislation which may have had huge financial consequences uh, for the executive and there had to be a bit of uh, negotiating and a bit of politicking done to resolve that issue. So I, I want to see legislation which is uh, workable and enforceable. Because the point I'm trying to get to is, quite understandably, uh, elected representatives will be concerned that the courts take power away from them. Uh, there is a democratic part of the elected representatives in order to uh, make the laws. Uh, but there is also a danger that elected representatives make unworkable and unenforceable laws. So it's not simply around the Bill of Rights. In that sense, you know, there is concern that the Bill of Rights will take away power, but if we make the wrong laws in the Assembly, then they're going to end up in court anyway. So I suppose the point of the question I'm trying to get to is this. Uh, uh, it's a point you made, Maria, and Ferris Peter covered it as well. Rights have to be enforceable, and that's whether it's a Bill of Rights, uh, whether it's Section 75, whether it's the Rural Needs Act, whether it's uh, the Human Rights Act that was talked about, or even in terms of educational rights, and we see a lot of awareness for it here in terms of, or in terms of, in terms of educational needs. Uh, so, how do we ensure, well, the legislators have to ensure the legislation is proper, but how do we ensure that uh, we do have an enforceable Bill of Rights, which is a useful piece of legislation and an enforceable piece of legislation? Um, okay, well, um, when you're um, making those points, John, um, you talked about Section 75 and the Royal Needs Act. Um, the thing that occurred to me about those is Generally speaking, what they, the enforceability mechanism for them is not the maybe traditional hard-edged enforceability mechanism. It requires certain identified common bodies to have regard to um, the need to secure quality, um, the need to um, ensure um, um, reflection of their own needs, etc. And that's perfectly valid. You know, it, and I think it, it reflects the reality that very often what lawmakers want to do is to set the tone, to um, to project soft power, if you like. This is what we're looking to try to achieve 
But to do so in a way that recognizes that we live in an imperfect world, that there are financial constraints, um, and that at times there will be different ways of achieving things, and more than one way to skin a cat. And um, so I think it really, much of this will depend on the model that's eventually adopted uh, and across the spectrum from aspirational rights, very hard edged rights, and where you find that those rights sitting in that spectrum when we get to it. And maybe in the next, maybe within it, some elements sort of be more hard edged than others. Um, and as I've said, the more hard edged are, the easier it is to enforce them because you have right X that says an individual has a right to whatever it might be. Um, and um, if they don't get that, then they go to court and the court's enforced. So it's not in that circumstance, it's not a situation actually, I would say to you respectfully, whereby the elected representatives are having power taken away from them by the courts. In actual fact, what's happening is the courts are reflecting the the reality that the elected representatives wanted to achieve, and they are enforcing it. So there's an opportunity for the judicial branch of the state government um, to work hand in glove with the legislature and the executive to achieve that which is achieved. And as the Chief Justice made near um, through his presentation, the judges don't make the law, the judges are not there to put the law on Christian, we don't have the democratic um, uh, accountability to do that. They don't have what you all have as being tribute to the people um, to, to make the laws about for people. But what they do have is the independence and the power under our system of law, the rule of law, to make sure that that which has been brought into law is upheld and enforced. And that's very important also, and, and, um, and all courts, I would say to you, have never shied away from doing that. And I think that a bill of rights come in the future will be met with that kind of alacrity from the courts as well. So um, if you want it to be enforceable, if you, um, then, you know, what I'm saying, make it so. Um, but in making it so, you have to recognise the impacts that that has. So it will mean that, for example, if the Bill of Rights was some kind of fundamental rule and, and sits above what might come afterwards from the assembly, so the assembly makes some law afterwards, one option might be mirroring the Social Human Rights Act, which would say, well, if that law is incompatible with the rights under the Bill of Rights, then it'll have to be addressed in some shape or form. Either it's just declaration of incompatibility or if it's secondary legislation, that you give the courts part of the type of time. And um, so that's the kind of enforceability that can, can be exercised. But if, if the laws, uh, the rights that want to back law um, are vague, and I don't mean that in a majority way, I just mean in reality, if they are vague, they become more difficult to enforce because it brings into play more of the variables and factors that are recognised, for example, Things like Section 75 and Northern Ireland or the Rural Needs Act, um, as opposed to, for example, some provision of the Social Security Act that provides um, a specific right to a particular benefit at a particular rate in particular circumstances. 
So, John, um, I'll just come in there, if that's okay. Um, from my perspective, and you're talking about, um, you know, how do you make uh, Bill of Rights useful and enforceable? And I think that there's a couple of things, one of them being that, um, you know, it's a, it's a matter of consulting with the public, I think, as well. And I know that you're doing that at the moment with public consultation. I think that, you know, people have to have a sense of, um, you know, involvement in it, if not, you know, ownership, but involvement in it. And that, that this thing about human rights not being an abstract concept, it has to mean something, it has to have that granularity. What does that right mean to me? And so that has to be set out in whatever way you decide upon, which is not an easy task. I, 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 don't, I don't deny that. But I think then that you know, there, there are different remedies then that you can have. And so if you, I, I was interested by what Professor Arena had to say in terms of those localized tribunals. And oftentimes people have problems um, that they believe their rights have been breached. And if they get an airing of that problem in front of, you know, it might not be a judge, but, you know, a tribunal chair, for example, and that they might then be satisfied with that outcome. And that doesn't necessarily lead to, you know, being in court every turn about from the government's perspective. But there are those different realities. And I think it's set out in the briefing by the Bar Library, um, this, these different sort of range of alternative dispute um, mechanisms as well can be built in. So when you have mediation, oftentimes these challenges don't get the front of a judge because if people feel they have been wronged, and that in some way can be put right within the confines of, of the bill itself, that it doesn't necessarily result in, in being in court all the time. Um, so the other point that I just wanted to make uh, about that was you know, the, the fear of the, the power being taken away from the government and, and handed over the courts. Like, I do think it has to be maintained that this is not about the, you know, and I, I don't um, mean to be dismissive, but about the women of the government, because this government is not going to be the same as the next government, you know, exactly the same, and it's going to change. But the rights should remain consistent and potentially evolve, but those rights should be set down in a, in a, in a piece of legislation and that they should continue on um, into the future. Yeah, I don't doubt any of that. I is a uh, a, a constitution but everybody knows the, the rules of the game as such um, and uh, going back to your earlier comments Maria around uh, the identification of lawyers as activists and, and the criticism of lawyers by the government I fully agree with it, it's unacceptable um, I, I uh, as a minister was legally challenged several times in court and at times I didn't like the challenge uh, but I understand and fully appreciate and endorse the right of the people to challenge me. Uh, because that is part of the democratic system. There have to be checks and balances to ensure that the, the laws I enforce or the laws I have introduced are properly administered. And the way you do that is through legal legal legal, legal scrutiny. Sometimes it's not legal challenge, it's legal scrutiny because you come, I want to come on to the next point then. In our legal framework already, we have several mechanisms uh, for resolving disputes rather than going to court. And I think I refer back to the education system again, that there's a tribunal there, which is not a court system, it's a tribunal system at different levels. 
uh, to resolve disputes. So I, I fear sometimes that the concerns around the Bill of Rights ending up blocking up our courts uh, takes all of life of its own. Well, it's not necessarily, and I don't believe it will be the case. Uh, no, why in an unfortunate number of years of the Bill of Rights, if there's legal challenges, so be it. That sets the precedence for future ones, and perhaps by their approve or tidy up the laws in some way. Uh, so it's not really a crisis, it's more of a comment. Thank you very much for your uh, presentation. You may want to respond to some of that or not, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose the only thing I would just add, and it's to echo something Peter already has said, you know, that court, courts, uh, judges, lawyers, they don't create new rights. They look at the rights that have already been put in, and in, in terms of any challenge, it's not challenging the ability uh, or, or the power that the government had, it's challenging the legal limits of that power. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you uh, very much, and thank you for your your presentation and your your answers. Um, I was uh, I was encouraged to hear um, John O'Dowd's very conservative judicial or sorry conservative legislative philosophy. Um, you know, we should only pass laws if we absolutely need to, and I absolutely agree with that. Um, he's not going to come back on me for calling him a conservative, um, but. Uh, one of the things that I think is, uh, this actually, John touched on it when he referred to, you know, you're creating a constitution and you will know in uh, the United States of America there are two, effectively two schools of judicial thought. There's originalists who believe that the American constitution should be interpreted uh, through the prism of what those who authored it expected it to deliver. And then you have textualists who assert that, so for example, they think things like the Second Amendment to the Constitution, which requires, uh, which allows for gun ownership, um, they think that that's a dated concept that goes back to a time when America was a new country and faced the very real possibility uh, of invasion by um, the United Kingdom. Uh, in that context, when authors, in this case it'll be politicians, when authors put down um, provisions, they often can't envisage where they end up. So, for example, uh, I would very much doubt if the people who wrote Article 8 of the European Convention of Human Rights could have envisaged a circumstance where that article would be used to prevent the deportation of people from this country who came here and stood on street corners demanding the murder of Jews and Christians and other groups that they don't like. So if you could talk to that in terms of what was originally intended and then how uh, these things can actually end up being interpreted. Yeah. Well, um, uh, the, uh, the Human Rights Act in uh, 1998 incorporates many provisions of the uh, European Convention of Human Rights um, into our domestic law. And the European Convention was created in 1950. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it would be fair to say that the word of 1950 is um, very different in many, if not every way, from the word we have in And um, the Convention 
and the George Freedom Center and the Convention um, has developed, um, maybe not a pace of society, but it certainly has striven to um, to reflect um, developments in societal approaches and, and in societal norms. And I think it, um, you could probably expect that, uh, that that would be the way in which the rights is more likely than not going to develop over time in our jurisdiction. So um, uh, I think, again, this may be something like a uh, preamble like Touchcon. They might specifically try to um, guide the course as to how the document might live and, and uh, breathe as years go by. And they're, they're, you're right, I think, Christopher, say that in doing that, you move into territory where you, you, you might be creating that document in the year, say, I don't know, 2022. Um, but it, may, it will resonate down through the generations and, and could still be open uh, to interpretation 100 years later, maybe 200 years later, maybe beyond, without um, um, the legislature having interfered previously. And, um, and maybe that's the way it has to be. We don't know what the world will be like in 50 years' time. The, the type of life that our children will have in that time. So should we set parameters now on what the rights that they should enjoy in that time to come should be? Um, and, and I think there, there must be room for it to become a living document. Um, I'm struck by when we were making those remarks um, by some of the obituaries that I've read in the last few days. For Lord Care, Maria uh, quite rightly referred to Lord Care in her remarks a while ago. A crisis in, in the law in, in this jurisdiction and further afield, who sadly died last week, very untimely um, sudden death. And so that's very, very much more the offer still to, to the law in this jurisdiction. During his time as a lawyer and as a judge, both in Northern Ireland and then on the UK Supreme Court, um, he was very much one of the drivers of developing the law uh, as a living thing and not something that simply is reduced by face and other dusty documents uh, on lawyers' shelves. And he looked at some of the cases uh, that he dealt with um, um, on the Supreme Court in particular, um, very often as a sending voice on the Supreme Court, uh, and uh, how he recognised the need. For the law to reflect and touch upon the society that it serves. So I think the Bill of Rights would very much do that and should do that. Um, but it does carry risks too because it means that you're legislating for something that you don't really know mm. what the implications will be. And the current Chief Justice, I think, touched on this in his presentation too as well, when he said that um, to, to the effect of it, it's not really possible to predict how those rights would then develop over the years to come. If you, if you, I think constitution was the important word that, um, that the previous speaker used. If you move in the direction of a written constitution, which Bill of Rights in, in a very real sense is, that then opens up questions about the appointment of people who would interpret the constitution, doesn't it? Because if you, if you have a written constitution that's interpreted in two different ways, you'll have two different schools developing then you're into questions about 
you know, in what in what wing or in what school do the judges who will be appointed to interpret it? And I I foresee if we're if you're not too careful, you end up with um, similar situation that exists in the United States of America, where the interpretation of the Constitution is highly politicised, is right at the heart of um, the political process in terms of. You know, people are elected president on the basis of promises to appoint judges of certain opinions and philosophies. And if we go down, one of the I think one of the advantages of our system has been actually that we don't have a written constitution, that it does evolve organically over time. I'm just wondering, experience elsewhere in the world would indicate that written constitutions can end up highly politicising uh, the judicial process. Well, um, I mean, yes, we, in the United Kingdom and North Ireland, in that sense, doesn't have a written constitution, for example, in the way that, that the Republic has, to yeah. use an example, and um, well, what we do have currently um, is the European Convention on Human Rights incorporated through the Human Rights Act, and um, it does give voice to uh, the recognition and uh, interpretation and enforcement of many fundamental rights that might otherwise in other parts of the world uh, be founded in um, constitutional or fundamental law. And um, while well, I appreciate what you say in terms of the American experience, um, I have to say to you that it's not any experience that I or I respect most of my colleagues and Maria will agree with me about this. It doesn't really reflect what we see as how our judges uh, interpret the Human Rights Act and operate the Human Rights Act. Mm. And they still do so very much on legal principle and not on any kind of um, political um, aspect for front. And, and in fact, you nearly say, God I mean, they would be horrified, I think, at the, uh, at the prospect of that, as would. I think um, all lawyers in this jurisdiction. So I, I appreciate the point you make and the concern that you give rise to. But I'm, I think that the experience here, thankfully, has been somewhat different and more realistic in nature. And, and I think that you would expect that more likely to be the way into the future. And particularly if addressed specifically in some kind of preamble type way that gives life to. Um, what it is uh, the legislature is expecting from the judiciary in terms of dealing with mm. um, a government. That's grand. Thank you. All right, Christopher. Peter and Maria, we have uh, dragged you both over the coals and, and uh, took, taken up a lot of your time this afternoon. So thank you both thank very you. much for, for joining us and, and for your presentations and, and answering all our questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. All the best. Bye. 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 Okay, members. So we can move on. So we've skipped an agenda item because we took the presentations together. So the next is chair's business. We don't have any this week, and we then have the draft minutes. If everyone is happy to agree, minutes from mm -hmm. last week. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, we don't have any matters arising. 
Then there's two items of correspondence. Um, you'll find the, the memo at page 28 of your packs. Um, and it was just to note, firstly, the letter from Professor Bryce Dixon, who has followed up with a point of clarification uh, following his, his presentation last week and an answer that he gave to John O'Dowd about the Assembly's uh, legislative competence. And then we have a letter from the Office of the Attorney General um, that responding to an invite that we had um, given to her, suggesting that we invite her if necessary to assist us in any specific legal matters, if we consider that helpful. So if everyone's happy to content, yeah. content to note those. And then agenda item eight is forward work programme, which you'll find beginning at page 32 of the meeting pack, if members are happy to note. Yep. Do members have any other business? So the date, time and place of the next meeting is this, no, the next room, um, Thursday the 17th of December, 2pm. All right. Thank you. I want to deal with something that can actually...